All right, it is July 4th, 2023, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. Excited to be back. It's been far too long. June sucked. July's going to rock. Happy Independence Day to all of those who celebrate it in the States. And this is born on 4th of July, baby. We are back. We're going to rock this month. That is for sure. To start off this fantastic month of podcasts at the FPP, we're going to do a business strategy session type of deal today. So first, we're going to talk about Endeavor's financials. Uh, Obviously, their 2022 financials came out and we haven't touched on it too much. We're not going to touch a ton on it, but we need to talk about the 8K filing that they filed with the SEC on June 12th that covers their Q1 2023 finances, as well as talks about how they plan to navigate, uh, you know, the future. And I feel like there is a fair amount of obstacles and headwinds in their way. We need to dive into what their best strategies are to tackle some of those issues and to keep those giant profit margins still churning because they've got a pretty rough set of waves coming up that they haven't dealt with in a while. Then we're going to talk about Conor McGregor. He has had some issues as of late, specifically with the Miami Heat. He had a deal lined up that looks like it might now fall through. He's had the allegations of sexual assault. He's had the hurting of the Heat mascot. And he is on the Ultimate Fighter with Michael Chandler. And the ratings are in there. And they're not exactly blockbuster. So two questions we need to answer. One, has McGregor's star power finally started to wane a bit? And two, if it has, how does he recharge it? Or even if it hasn't, how does he retain where he's at? Because it's definitely a little bit different than it was, you know, even when he came back for Cerrone and that fight, right? So we're going to break all of that down. Then we're going to do the quick hit section, have a myriad of topics to discuss there. And finally, we're going to talk about the PFL and their business strategy moving forward. Had the Francis Ngannou signing, had the... Uh, fighters fail drug tests had the Natan Schultz rush Menafal fight. And then the switching of Natan Schultz for Shane Burgos seemingly at the promotion's discretion. And you have a lawsuit from a PFL challenger series alum who did not get selected for the tournament and was denied going over to Dana White contender series locked into a three-year contract as a backup. So a lot to navigate there. And we're going to sort out which of those problems actually matter in terms of the business strategy for PFL and which ones, frankly, they can ignore or they can, you know, mitigate kind of at their choosing. So with that all in mind, timestamps below at the bottom as always. And let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. First up, we are going to talk about Endeavor's finances, specifically their 8K filing from June 12th with the SEC. So 2022 was a fantastic year uh, for Endeavor and the UFC. Once again, UFC being their main driver of profit and net income. Uh, you saw revenues of $1.14 billion, which is insane. I mean, that's just, they are murdering it. It, it. it cannot understate how crazy their revenue and profit margins are it's it's flabbergasting um they also are only paying fighters at about 13 percent, so that's you know below their target of 15 to 20 percent um for fighter costs which is great for them as a business i know there was a lot of people kind of running 
with that uh, tagline and talking about that a bit. There was also people talking about, again, they're making more money than all of the other MMA and boxing promotions combined. That is wild, to say the least. I mean, they are essentially themselves a whole industry within an industry. And that just speaks to their you know, market share and their power right now. Um, but this filing is important because it talks more about the future. It gives a look into the finances of quarter one of 2023. So that would have ended on March 31st of this year. Um, we are just now at the end of quarter two, beginning quarter three. And I am looking at, uh, of course, John Nash's fantastic work um, on these financials. You can read the actual reports itself. I've done that too, but Nash sums it up in fantastic ways. I cannot recommend enough. It's worth it's worth the money. If you're a business nut like me, it's worth the money to a support his work as well as you know just get a, a nice concise breakdown that's better than anything I could do detail wise. So we're going to talk high level here, and I'm going to refrain from going into certain details because that wouldn't be fair uh, to him because of some of the stuff that's behind the paywall, but we'll still be able to kind of suss out what needs to be done from a business strategy perspective. So in Q1, you had revenue, again, just booming uh, up, you know, 18.1% more than what they reported for last year. So uh, 47.1 million more, uh, 224.1 million in domestic and international media rights and content, which is an increase of 37 million from last year. Uh, 31.5 in live event, that's an increase of 8.2 million, which is a pretty big increase, uh, including live audiences, pay per view. So I know people are saying, oh, they're at the apex. This is terrible, well, which we'll talk more about later. Uh, but I mean, live event revenue is up. And I think that's partially because of that scarcity, right? You can only go to so many UFC events now. They do pay-per-views, they do some fight nights, and they're tending to sell out, and they're tending to, you know, if they don't sell out, at least all of the ticket prices are, are much higher than they used to be. Um, it's kind of crazy to look at some of these ticket prices. An example of this is UFC 291. Standard admission for the farthest back seat uh, is $300 plus some fees. When I went to 226 which was in the T-Mobile arena, um, was International Fight Week, you know, Cormier versus Stipe for one, uh, and it was a loaded card up and down. I paid around 300 total to be in the first row of that upper tier, and it was a really stacked card. Now, keep in mind, 291 is stacked too, but it, that just goes to show kind of the differences. I, I mean, those same seats now at the... 291 card that I paid $300 for would be about 450. So that's a, you know, 50% jump in price and they're still mostly selling out. If you go look at the tickets available right now. It is few and far between. A lot of them are resale. So they're doing just fine in that regard. Um, looking at sponsorship that hasn't increased a ton, but still 1.7 million, uh, 38.1 million total. And then consumer product licensing actually decreased a little bit, uh, but only by, you know, 0.2 million. So 200 K nothing, nothing to be super upset about. Um, the interesting thing though, that if you look at the filing and as it continues, and again, go read Nash's posts for the details here. Cause he does it way better than I could. Um, is that operating expenses went up. Uh, you had an increase due to 
a couple more live events, especially the international stuff, but you also have rising interest rates. And that interest rate payment and debt uh, that you know the UFC has on it is is still a big problem in terms of a future obstacle. I'm gonna take a step back here and kind of break down why that's a specific problem, and then we'll go back into the filing itself. But for those of you that don't know anything about the U.S. financial system or, you know, know a little bit, but don't quite, you know, know enough to be dangerous. I'm going to break this down as simply as I can. In general, interest rates are raised or lowered by the Federal Reserve uh, for certain reasons. Big one I'm sure most of you in the U.S. have heard about is inflation, right? If inflation is really high, the Federal Reserve will tend to raise interest rates so that it's high harder for companies to borrow money. And then thus they essentially are forced to let people go or cut back certain operations because when you can get money at a super cheap interest rate, right? Like let's say it's like, you know, around zero or one or whatever it was in COVID times, that's essentially free money to them. It's, it's, I'm going to take a ton of this money and then I'm going to pay back the interest payments, but my interest payments are almost non-existent. And I can just take a ton of that money and then I can use it to scale up. I can use it to employ more people. I can acquire certain companies. I can expand operations into a whole new market, which again, leads to more jobs, more product movement, more cogs in terms of your cost of goods sold. It, it causes a domino effect. If I am a business looking to expand or grow, debt is one of my biggest tools. Because yes, you can issue equity, right? You can sell stock and all that stuff, but then that dilutes your actual share of profit. Whereas debt, right? If I'm able to borrow money, let's say 10 grand from my parents and they ask for like a $300 fee back and I can take 10 years to pay it back. If I take that $10,000 and invest it in the stock market, make an 8% return on average, you know, I end up with way more than that. $300 is nothing to me. I, I get a huge profit. And that's not exactly how this works with businesses, but it's it's kind of the same idea of, okay, I'm going to take all this money, expand my operations here, get even more profit, whatever I have to pay on interest, especially because it's such a low interest rate, pff, no problem. Oh, 1%, 2%? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. I will go ahead and gladly take a ton of money out and then pay back that 2% interest. Ugh, no problem. A big, big variable, an important variable with taking out this money is sometimes you get fixed rate interest, right? So for mortgages, this is why part of the reason why housing prices went berserk and why people were trying to buy a house is that's just fixed over the lifetime. doesn't matter, you know, how many times the Federal Reserve decides to raise their interest rate. If I lock in a 2% rate for 30 years, that means I'm paying 2% interest for 30 years awesome. I'm paying very little interest. I'm able to, you know, make these payments and live in a house. Then there's variable interest rate. That was part of the 2008 recession where so many people had mortgages with variable interest rates. And obviously with variable interest rate, it's whatever the federal reserve decides. So if you're getting a mortgage at say like 10%, 11%, whatever, and then the federal reserve decides, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and 
slash interest rates down to five, then great. That means your payments are less. It's essentially like automatic refinancing for a house. It just automatically happens. Uh, it's somewhat easier to get variable interest rate debt because there's a lot less risk on the lender in that regard, right? A lot more chance for them to make money and stay in line with current interest rates so that they don't, you know, sell you a mortgage for X amount of money at 2% and then, oh, interest rates jump to seven like they are now and they're losing out on that 5% interest rate because you happen to lock in at that fixed rate of two, right? So we know that the UFC has about 40% of their debt at variable interest rate for their massive, you know, acquisitions of everything, two point whatever billion it is. And the Federal Reserve right now has this major problem where if unemployment and inflation, if unimpl sorry, if inflation is high, which it still kind of is, and then unemployment is low, which it's historically low in the US right now, they've typically raised interest rates to cause people to spend less money, cause companies to spend less money. And then that usually leads to a higher unemployment rate and leads to less spending, which kind of cools down rising prices because companies aren't able to rise or raise prices if they don't have as many people to buy the product, if they can't afford to lose certain customers, it causes the domino effect, right? That's just a high level gist of, of the American financial system and Federal Reserve function as it pertains to this. Right now, they're in a very unique position where despite raising rates multiple times, unemployment is still very, very low, and they're not quite sure what to do about it. Sounds like based on the, you know, chairman's, which was Jerome Powell, um, comments, they're going to keep raising interest rates until they see more unemployment, which, yeah, it sounds messed up, kind of is, uh, doesn't address, you know, companies that decide to just raise prices, not because of inflation, but just to actually get more profit, which is a huge problem going on as well. But it certainly seems like the Fed is going to keep raising interest rates until they see some movement in unemployment and inflation ticking lower. And inflation's down a little bit, but not as much as they'd like. That's a big problem for somebody like the UFC because we're already at around 7% interest rates, I think. Um, and that's, of course, borrowing. Fun fact, that's for us consumers, right? So if you go for a mortgage, it'll say seven. That's not for businesses. That's not the true interest rate. We get a tax added on because we're consumers. Yeah, I don't even want to go into that. But it's going to probably keep rising in the foreseeable future. That is a giant headwind for the UFC. And this filing, going back to the 8K, reflects that because their net income was down and it was pretty much because of the interest rate rising, right? Um, yes, they had some other operating expenses and other things were up, but their interest rates and their interest payments now on their debt are starting to cut into their profit and net income. I talked about this mid last year and late last year when we talked about the overall macroeconomic environment, right? This was always a possibility. It's starting to come to fruition. And it's not just Endeavor in the UFC that's feeling this. You can see the dominoes slowly falling, right? I don't think we're in a recession recession yet, but it certainly seems to be going that way. 
how long it will be delayed, I'm not sure. Um, but look at ESPN laying off, you know, 20 on-air personalities as well as a bunch of other cuts uh, at the direction of Bob Iger. You've got bigger names getting cut from the network. That's not that surprising. Disney, several cuts. Uh, tech companies like Salesforce, um, Sumo Logic, a whole bunch of other companies around here, cuts. I'm seeing a lot more people getting cut, a lot more layoffs than before. And a big part of that is it's now much harder to just grab debt than it was before. It's not the same game as it was because when you're doing, you know, a, a whether you're going to a bank, whether you're going to a VC, uh, whether you're going to, you know, any type of investor, they're going to look and, you know, take, an evaluation of opportunity cost and they know what interest rates are. If they're lending you money, you have to be able to prove to them you're going to make enough of a profit that you'll pay them back at X amount of years with this amount of return. And it's going to get harder and harder when you have one form of, you know, one instrument, which would be debt in this case, that is increasingly harder to get. Can you still sell equity? Sure. But again, that dilutes your overall, you know, personal profit, which a lot of people don't want to do, right? CEOs, founders, all like certain investment groups, if they own a company, they don't want to necessarily dilute their shares more and more. It causes them to lose money. If they dilute it enough, you could have an issue with, you know, hostile investors coming in and activists doing all that fun stuff, trying to shake shake things up, make decisions that you can't control. Part of the reason Endeavor has their current structure, right? Where uh, the certain amount of group of Ari Emanuel, Patrick Whitesell, et cetera, has a crazy amount of shares. And when they issue new shares, their shares get the power of, I think it's eight to 10 votes per the one share issued. So they're always going to have control. Similar to what Vince McMahon did with WWE, right? He still is the largest shareholder of that company. Now they've done the sale. It's a little bit different, but um, cause it has not really the case anymore, but for the longest time it was his call and that's the same thing Endeavor has done. It's what a lot of companies do. You still don't want to dilute your shares too much cause you're still losing money. And yes, you can get more money in stock buybacks, all that fun stuff down the road, but it's not a preferred option for the C-suite and for investors. Let me put it that way. So you've got this filing that is now finally showing like, hey, for the first time in a while, you know, net income, profit, all that stuff has gone up, 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 all of a sudden, up, we have a slight dip. It's not much, right? It's still great net income, still crazy revenue, all that fun stuff. Revenue is still up year over year by quite a bit, but the actual net income has dropped a bit. That's very concerning. Now, according to this filing, the UFC and Endeavor and TKO, right, believe that they are in a good position uh, because of their synergies, right, with premium events. So that's the, you know, on location stuff for Apex shows where, hey, you pay a stupid amount of money to go sit in the Apex and watch people fight, uh, which sometimes you've got a good card there. Sometimes it's kind of, eh, but 
either way, you can't get into those shows without paying one of their VIP packages. They don't have just normal tickets, quote unquote. Um, You've got things like UFC X for International Fight Week, which if you've gone International Fight Week in the past, it used to be free, right? They just set up that area. You'd go in. Used to be free. You get to do the autographs, all that stuff. Now it costs like I think 40 bucks um, for two days or 25 bucks or something. And then there's a VIP option. So that costs even more. Uh, yeah, they're starting to charge people for that now. That's a new source of revenue that used to be free as of when it was just like the, it wasn't called UFCX, it was called something else. So I think two or three years ago, pre, pre-COVID, right? Uh, it's bigger now, apparently. I have not been yet. I want to go at some point, but uh, it's in the convention center instead of just the downtown uh, Las Vegas area. But still, it now costs money. They've, they've kind of passed that on to their consumers to get more revenue in that regard. But that's something they think will help them. Uh down the line. They also expect uh, increased revenue due to their media rights, right? They think that based on the way media rights are going, they're going to get a really good deal there. Um, They think that because the consumer base is trending younger, they'll get more stuff, all that fun stuff. And, And also that just because they're not a true league, they're going to be able to kind of, you know, be more nimble. And, and be more uh, agile in terms of decisions that come their way because they don't have to have a huge vote, right? Like if the NFL wants to make a huge change, you have to have the owners all get together and vote. Uh, we saw this with the MLB rules changes. We've seen it with the NCAA and their you know, um, playoff expansion. It's a bit of a process. So they believe like, well, we've just got us, right? We don't have a ton of other people other than people running the current company. So we'll be able to kind of make and pivot as needed, which... Again, during COVID, that was huge, right? COVID, they were able to pivot and become the first sport back, I think largely in part because they had full control there. And yeah, it was a bit of a mess to get it done, the first couple shows, uh, but they did it. And I think that yielded quite a bit in terms of dividends and has has expanded their fan base and revenue. I think that's been a kind of key factor because you had people essentially have no sports and have to tune in to fights because it was the only thing on if you were a sports person, right? Uh, So yeah, that's certainly an advantage. But I think in terms of what they're facing down the line now, right? Their biggest obstacles are rising interest rates, as I just stated, because I think that's going to keep going, at least for the foreseeable future. I don't expect them to cut or stabilize rates at all in... 2023, I think we're probably going to see at least one more rate rise by another quarter percentage, maybe a full half percent by the time the year is done. Maybe not. Um, But I still expect it to go up from where it is now. And you've got the media rights deal issue where, yes, they will almost certainly get more money than they're getting now, but I don't think they're going to get that doubling of media rights that they've seen in the past, especially from international deals, right? Something to note is that the UFC believes a huge amount of their fan base is outside of the US. Um, Ari Emanuel, I think, said 90-95. I think in the filings, they say around 90. That is going to be important in the future because if you're outside the US, UFC events cost a lot less than they do in the US, right? Here we pay $80 per pay-per-view, which is 
just wild to think about $80 per pay-per-view. And some of the pay-per-views, you know, are like, what? <laughs> Others are pretty stacked. And it's like, okay, it's not ideal, but it's, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of fans buy it, a certain amount of casual fans get together, all chip in, buy it. Sure. You know, go to bars, have, have, you know, those types of events, which are still going on. Uh, it's in theaters too. They still got that deal going where they're running it in theaters now, but it's $80 per pay-per-view. That's on top of the ESPN plus monthly subscription, which has gone up quite a bit. I think the new yearly plan is a hundred dollars. Yeah, I know it is. Cause I just got a notification about it. Previously I was paying, I think 70 uh, for a yearly plan. So, I mean, it's a huge jump, right? That, that's a major, major jump, almost a 50% increase. Um, and you know, they're getting away with it to an extent. A lot of that is Disney. I don't think it's as much the UFC because I don't believe the UFC really gets a say in pricing, right? Uh, they get a say in like, hey, this is how much you're going to pay us to deliver per show. But then the actual distribution, that comes down to the network. So that's a lot of Disney. But when you get outside of the US, that's that's nowhere near the case. I've heard $30 for pay-per-view. I've heard free. I've heard $5. I've heard, you know, and seen people complaining about when a McGregor fights on BT Sport, you know, for $29.99 or, or $25, whatever it is. That's still, you know, more than they were paying before, but it's it's nowhere near the amount of revenue they're charging within the US. And as these interest rates rise, that's going to be a key, key factor because obviously their deals for distribution outside of the US, they have a little bit more negotiation power. They may get a split from, right? Like, let's say BT box office, they might actually get a split from those like they used to in the old days with pay-per-views. Um, don't know all the specifics there. That might not be the case, but they've, they've definitely have different deals and negotiations in place, which will affect the amount of money they take in from those international broadcasts. And with 90 to 95% of their fan base outside of the US, trying to tap into that consumer base is going to be harder than US fans, I would say. Because at least in the US, right, you've been raising those prices. You have a lot of events here stateside. Um, you're able to kind of set the expectation based on what else is happening here where you can raise those prices and it's not cheap and you will lose fans that are paying and either pirating streams or, you know, not going to events as much, et cetera. But it, it's still a smaller percentage of your overall fan base. The, the best way you can maximize your profit is to get more out of this large subset of fans that doesn't exist in the States. And those fans hasn't been tested as much in terms of, oh, we're going to actually start charging you in, you know, uh, I'm trying to think the Middle East, right? I think, I think those guys are free. I think Australia is not free anymore. It's behind a, a package. Don't know about New Zealand, but they're going to have to start finding different ways to get more out of those fans. And that's going to be an uphill battle for them. But if they want revenue from consumers to increase, that's what they have to do. Now, obviously, if you look at the breakdown of their current Q1 finances, the media rights deals are are king above all. And that's 
clearly what they're banking on during this next round of negotiations is to get another huge deal, another 100%-ish increase with ESPN or whoever, Amazon, whoever's looking to get into the market. Because if they do that, then a lot of this other stuff falls away, right? That's the bulk of their money. And they've already doubled up on so many of the other deals internationally. I mean, if they can get double on their bread and butter U- US rights, uh, that changes everything. Uh, that's that's the key that's the key thing they need to do this next coming cycle. And I am sure they believe with WWE rights also coming up, Nick Khan has already talked about a little bit CEO of WWE where they're there's some discussions around packaging them together. It's a sweet deal, right? Like, hey, come get two of the biggest sports sports entertainment franchises that are killing it on terrestrial cable right now. And get those media rights. Because, again, ESPN has been very happy with the subscriber growth on ESPN+. Plus. They might be willing to eat a huge amount of costs to pay and then keep up that ESPN plus growth. Ideally ESPN plus is going to replace ESPN, right? And they have to keep the service growing and stable enough long enough for that to happen. So that is an option. Um, you're going to see Amazon try and get into it. Of course, too. Uh, David Zaslaw, um, who is owner of HBO Discovery, right? He's been vocal about maybe wanting to get into that. He owns BT uh, Sports, so that's not, you know, wouldn't be shocked if he makes an offer, but that's going to be a key moving forward is getting the media rights deal locked down. The big problem is, is that I think the macroeconomic environment, the more it starts to turn, the harder that's going to be. Because suddenly it's going to be none of those companies can afford to give the UFC double. Right, maybe they can give a fifty percent increase, which is still big, but it's not going to be as much as the UFC wants. And as the interest rates keep going up, it's going to start slowly chipping away more and more at UFC profit. And we've talked about already; they've done a lot of fighter cost cutting. Right, they're down to thirteen percent of total costs in twenty twenty two. I'm sure they'll try and drive that lower overall in twenty twenty three. Prime example of that is you had uh, Jack. Della uh, Madalena, right? His opponent fallout and several names offered to step in. Uh, you know, Action Man Curtis, uh, Kevin Holland, Big Mouth. They were all ignored for a regional undefeated prospect, Josiah Hammerell, I think, or Harrell, Josiah Harrell, uh, who's almost certainly getting a 10K, 10K contract, right? Or 12K, 12K, whatever it is, minimum contract. You're going to see more of that fights out. Okay. We're just going to go ahead and pick up a guy that is literally the lowest possible option. Just happened with Bo nickel announced today, I believe where Trayshawn Gore is out and you now are ended up with an undefeated prospect seven and Oh, great. Uh, but almost certainly 10 K 10 K or 12 K 12 K nothing more. That's going to keep happening. They're going to keep putting on more events that are, are just less and less than what they used to be. I've seen a lot of people lately talking about Apex needs to go and they need to stack cards a little bit more, but that's not going to happen, especially in this environment. The era of free money and free borrowing is over. That writing is definitely on the wall at this point. So the question becomes, where can I squeeze the most juice? 
And we talked about last time that UFC is probably starting to enter, getting already there in the mature part of the business life cycle. They're now looking at keeping their profits and revenues high while cutting costs. That's a major, major concern for them. So they're not going to do fight nights like they used to all over the place because logistically it costs a lot. They're not going to have as many big name fighters all on one card because event-wise, per event, it costs a lot. You're going to see more and more Dana White Contender Series. Somebody was talking about how stacked UFC 290 was, and it is compared to other cards. But if you look back even just a year or two years ago for International Fight Week, this card is is a far cry from what those cards used to be. I mean, if you go all the way back to 2017, 2016, I mean, you, you had... And, Granted, 2016 was UFC 200, but still, you have a, a from a rankings and name, well-known name standpoint, you have a far, far less full card than you used to. And that's part of it. Still have big fights at the top, which we know from uh, Paul Giff's analysis is t- what influences the casual buyer the most. And then... Yeah, you've got some up-and-coming names here and there, but not anything like it was. You don't have almost every fight featuring either a hot prospect or a well-known name. You've got several prospect fights that, sure, will be, I'm sure will be action fights and great, but a lot of showcase fights, too, uh, um, partially because people fell out, etc., but it, it's nothing like it was even just a year ago. Compare 276 to 290. And tell me how many fighters just right off the bat you recognize name-wise. It's going to be harder. And that's going to keep happening. As these interest rates go up, as the media rights can become a little bit more, not real, but, you know, discussions become more serious, I, I would say, just in terms of, okay, we've got to get a deal done. We've got to, you know, really negotiate hard. The UFC has to find a way to up their media rights while keeping the ratings high enough and getting enough new fighters in that costs remain low. That is the balancing act they're dealing with right now. Sponsorships are good, but again, there's only so many <laughs> sponsors you can get in terms of you know octagon space. It's already getting full. I'm sure at some point it will literally just look like a giant, you know, um, a giant mosaic of ads that people are fighting on. Uh, I'm sure you will end up with more uh, sponsors on jerseys, right? Crypto.com was obviously a big one, but they have ceased U.S. operations, which is big. Um, so they're, UFC isn't getting their money there, I don't think. It's going to be tougher and tougher. And as income for especially American consumers, which are, I would assume, the most profitable consumer segment for the UFC as their uh, discretionary revenue dries up more because costs are going up and and wages have not gone up in the same regard, especially in a lot of middle income jobs, right? It's going to be tougher and tougher to squeeze juice from a stone. This is, in my mind, the most important, Important period and biggest test for the UFC since Endeavor purchased it coming up. And I would guess the next two years. Maybe it starts at the end of this year. Maybe it's 2024. Maybe it's midway 24, 
technically could start in 2025. You never really know. But I think this next big or bigger economic downturn is going to be a very tough test for them because they still have a ton of debt outstanding and they've been on this just upward, upward, upward trajectory. And it's finally starting to even out and even dip a little bit, right? You can't go up forever. At some point you have to plateau at the best case scenario or you start to dip. And as we know from the way investors work, uh, doesn't matter how, how amazing you've done. If you start to dip, they will jump on you like sharks. They will start to sell shorts of your stock. They'll sell your stock off. They'll, you know, favorite example of this is when Apple was, you know, at their peak of, of earnings had some ungodly valuation. I think this was like 2015, 24, where it was just unreal. Um, stock price was through the roof and they just kept going up and up and they had the highest profits of any company ever that existed. And it was like a huge deal, all this, but it missed the Wall Street analyst consensus. It was still lower than what analysts thought. And because of that, the stock price dropped like 5%. It's like, here you have a company that has literally broken the amount of money that it's been able to acquire in one cycle in profit. It's broken that record. Nothing has ever been better than this but it's a little bit less than we expected. So we're going to sell our stock. Crazy, right? But that's how it works. Growth. Growth is everything. If you're not growing, you're dying. That's literally the phrase when it comes to this stuff. This is going to be a tough time, I think, for the UFC. Am I counting them out? Not at all. Especially with WWE on board and their popularity spiking right now. I think that's going to be a big boost for them for this overall new company TKO, but it is more dicey than it's been for quite some time in UFC history, right? Definitely since the Endeavor purchase, this is going to be their first test. I am sure they, they are clearly savvy enough business-wise. They can navigate this. They can probably come out of it. No problem, but it's going to be their first real headwind first, you know, major obstacle era. I would imagine Overall for 2023, this might be the year where net income is lower and, and finally drops compared to the previous couple of years. And I also imagine 2024, it, it probably drops more depending on what happens with the interest rates and all that. But they have a problem in terms of keeping growth going and they have to figure out how to solve it. I'm not sure how you solve this given all the moves you've already made if you're Endeavor think your best bet is again, more 10 K 10 K fighters till we're getting to the point where like, and I truly believe this will happen. We're going to get to the point where the main and maybe co-main event are well-known people. And the rest are all Dana White contender series people. We've seen this a couple times on apex card. I pay-per-views I think are going to start happening that way. That's going to be the norm. And then beyond that, I think we're going to get into a situation where the UFC has to start looking for more and more sponsors or really just more opportunities for growth via, you know, branding things of that nature that uh, similar to the prime deal, right? Things where we're, you're going to start seeing in my mind, more products where you're kind of scratching your heads like, really like, but okay, we're going to do that. 
as long as their ratings are still good and as long as they're out there selling. But sponsorships are going to be, especially in newer markets, are going to be a big driver. If there's any segment of their global fan base that is doing well or growing and there's, you know, during an economic downturn, they're going to target that segment as hard as they possibly can. I think you're going to end up with most countries having to pay pay-per-view prices, whether that's $10 a buy, 20, whatever. I don't know where they're going to set it, but I don't think it's going to be the case anymore where, Oh, you have, you know, UFC Saudi Arabia, or you have UFC Russia, or you have whatever. Great. Uh, here's this channel that you get either through your state, uh, you know, sanctioned cable or your, your cable deal or whatever. Uh, but no, you're going to have to pay on top of that for pay-per-views. You're going to get more, wait a minute, I'm paying for a McGregor pay-per-view in the UK. seems weird. And instead be like, wait, I'm paying for every pay-per-view in the UK. Yeah. I think that's where we're headed. That's, I know that was long. I know I went all over the place. Uh, but I think that's kind of a good summation of where we're at with Endeavor moving forward um, and the biggest headwinds they're facing. Let me know if this was helpful. Let me know if this was just way all, too all over the place. If it was, I appreciate the feedback because I, I want it to be engaging and I want to kind of describe all these aspects, but obviously there's a ton to go through, so it becomes tough. But let me know your thoughts too. Do you think the UFC is going to somehow increase their net income for 2023 and beyond? Do you think they're going to find ways to get through this? And if so, how? Because this is where, you know, I'm sure UFC execs are now sitting down and saying, okay, we've kind of taken the clear strategies XYZ to get more money. We now have to come up with brand new ones, ones we can't see nearly as easily as we did with the previous ones. This is where it's going to make or break them in terms of just crazy, crazy growth. I mean, it's not going to make or break them in terms of like, they're going to go under. Let me make that clear. But in terms of keeping growth and profitability up, this is this is a key point. This is the first sign of, okay, you've now got to really be, you know, imaginative here in terms of how you get money in. I'm not sure how they do it yet. I'm going to keep thinking on it, but it's an interesting time. I think it's one of the most interesting times for the UFC as a business since 2016. All right, next up, we need to talk about the UFC's favorite son, circa 2016, Conor McGregor. Uh, been dealing with a lot lately. To give a quick recap, um, Conor McGregor did go to a Miami Heat game during the playoffs. Uh, he did a skit with uh, the team's mascot, Bernie, where he punched him and then he punched him again on the ground. That actually sent Bernie to the ER, which wasn't great. Uh, in terms of PR optics, but that wasn't even the worst thing that happened because shortly after uh, that appearance, some sexual assault allegations came out from someone uh, saying that McGregor, you know, took them into a bathroom, assaulted them, uh, became a whole thing. Where those stand right now, it's still being investigated. McGregor's team vehemently denies that that happened and says it was a shakedown. There's some video out there showing, uh, you know, some interaction between the two kind of unclear where things are with that, but you know, innocent till proven guilty type thing with this. Uh, but a new story did come out from page six.com, uh, talking about the fact that the heat and McGregor essentially had what was a done deal, uh, to make his, uh, title T I D L sports cryo spray, the official pain relief partner of the Miami heat and probably have like a patch on the Jersey, things like that. That seems to be dead now. 
Um, executives seem pretty upset regarding all of the negative press that happened um, between the mascot and the sexual assault allegations. And, you know, the NBA is a very different beast compared to MMA, right? MMA, this type of stuff happens and, you know, within a week, it's all blown over, right? Um, Generally, sometimes you have a little bit more follow-up reporting, but it doesn't seem to affect drawing power or ratings or anything um, when it comes to particular individuals or to organizations. Uh, We'll in fact talk about a little bit later with EFL, but um, you know, in this case, whereas if this happens, UFC maybe gets a little bit of flack or or Dana says some comments like, Oh, it's gross, blah, blah, blah. And then nothing really happens, right? People keep watching. It's still a whole thing. NBA, this, this look is bad. They are much more stringent, much more, you know, we've got to have a squeaky clean image than boxing or combat sports in general. And this doesn't look great for them. So I'm not surprised that they're dropping this deal, which is a blow to McGregor's, you know, growing empire. He's clearly trying to get more and more products out there. He's got McGregor fast. He's got this title spray. He's got proper 12. He's which, I mean, he sold, but he's trying to be more of a business mogul. That That's, very plain to anybody that's been watching McGregor's career since, you know, his rise in the Mayweather fight and all that. He's smart in that he is trying to expand things way outside of MMA because MMA doesn't pay nearly as well as creating your own whiskey brand and selling it off to Jose Cuervo and making a ton of money or opening, well, opening the Black Forge in maybe just because who knows what the profit margins are in the restaurant business. They're not the best, but still he would be an owner. So he's probably going to get a lot more. Um, and then you have obviously title spread McGregor fast, which I'm sure he gets a huge amount of money from, uh, you've got the news outlet, right. Uh, that, you know, is always, uh, there doing stuff and it's, it's, he's clearly expanding into other businesses outside of MMA. And that's been his focus and it's increased his debt worth quite a bit and he hasn't had to go into a cage or train or worried about winning and losing any of that stuff. He's just been attacking from a business perspective. This will be a setback for him. Um, a heat partnership would have been huge, especially if you're a pain relief partner there, right? That could only have helped him in terms of gaining a foothold in the U S market, which I'm sure he wants so he can expand there. Um, but is what it is. Then you have the ultimate fighter. There's been a lot of talk about him not doing USADA samples. I'm not really going to address that too much because everyone's been like, if he doesn't provide a sample by this date, he can't fight. Well, yeah, of course he can. Exemptions are still very much a thing, right? Mark Hunt has filed a lawsuit about the exemptions and what happened with Brock Lesnar, but that's still very much up in the air. If the court comes back and says, nope, sorry, Hunt, your lawsuit doesn't work. McGregor will 100% get an exemption. If for some reason that doesn't happen because I do expect that to happen. Um, then in that case, that might be more of an issue where as a precautionary measure, the UFC and USADA might say, all right, no more exemptions. We're not doing that stuff again. And then it might delay the fight with Chandler. But I don't think that's a major factor right now in terms of setting up the McGregor Chandler fight, which is all based around the ultimate fighter new season. That's started right. Tough 31. Tough 31's ratings have not been exactly stellar, right? They haven't been terrible, terrible, but they've not been great. 
the premiere episode, I think, was 294K. was best for 11th in cable that night. Uh, it's dropped down a little bit. I think episode three was like 222K. So not great, but still, you know, in terms of terrestrial viewership, still in line with a promotion like PFL or something else. So it's not, not so bad that it's like, okay, we're going to pull it. Or this is a huge problem. We're going to make it just ESPN+. Plus. No, they're still doing fine. Um, but I think it does speak to McGregor's drawing power as a star. I will say that. Between the incident with the heat uh, and the tough ratings and the reaction from all that, I think his star has slowly started to fade a little bit. Not entirely, obviously, but you know he has had several losses now where he, he lost to Poirier twice. That definitely hurt him. I think this kind of reflects that. Um, it's been a while since he's fought outside of that. So, and now he's talking doing 170 and all this other stuff. Um, but he, he hasn't been doing a lot of things outside of that or staying active enough to the casual public eye where it, it just seems like He's not as big of a star as he once was. He's still a big drawing power star. I still love that. But when you've got the losses happening and you've got this negative attention, it doesn't take long for the public to turn on you, right? Or to move past you. you everybody gets their 15 seconds of fame, right? That, that's basically a saying of it's very, very hard for someone to keep up their you know, fame and their spotlight throughout their entire career. It's near impossible. Can it be done? Sure, there are examples of it. But for the most part, you get your 15 seconds and then you're done. McGregor has done a great job extending it out since his fantastic run right in the UFC back through 2014 and um, culminating with the Floyd Mayweather fight. But since then, his, his star has faded a little bit. I feel like I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this. From what I'm seeing in terms of the ratings, I would have expected at least 300 something if he was still back where he was, right? Um, for the premiere episode. And yes, terrestrial television is going down. Maybe people were watching ESPN Plus. Yes, et cetera, et cetera. But still, it's it's lower than you'd expect. It's still bigger than a lot of other things, right? Or in line with like an org like PFL. But it's it's not what you would necessarily expect because that should have been a casual eye grabber and it was on terrestrial ESPN too. Right. So it wasn't like, Oh, this is, you know, only on ESPN plus or it's super late. Like 10 PM is a later time slot. Sure. But you know, um, you, you've got wrestling on, uh, on Fridays, wrestling on Friday nights at 10 PM time slot with AEW's rampage. And they still consistently, Right, are, are drawing more than this, which, yeah, that's a whole different ball game, sure, but it, it does speak to McGregor's star power. I feel like, and the fact that the heat reaction wasn't, you know, a bunch of people weren't jumping to his defense, whatever. It seemed kind of just here's a negative press cycle, and wasn't even all over the place, right? It was, yeah, here's a, a kind of story about like some celebrity did this, but it was not a man like his retirement tweet where all of a sudden it was everywhere. It was on ESPN. It was on all these outlets everywhere. Like, Oh, he's tweeted. He's retired. Thanks for the cheddar. One of his many retirement tweets, but probably his earliest one at the time. Uh, it was just a whole thing. It's not the same atmosphere. And some of the numbers support that. I feel like moving forward, we'll see even more. I feel like McGregor versus Chandler pay-per-view buys will be revealed 
if that fight does happen. And I feel like it's going to be lower, partially because of the price of pay-per-view in the U.S., but also I just I don't know that it's going to necessarily break a million. Or if it does, it might just be right at one million. He's lost a couple of times. He's not been in the public eye as much. When he has been in the public eye, it's not great. So what does he do, right? If you're McGregor now, what do you do to kind of reinvigorate things? One, I think you have to fight Chamba, right? You just lost a major endorsement with the Heat. That would have been very, very big for you. Um, Ultimate Fighter isn't doing as well as you want. Uh, You got a lot of people saying that you're not going to actually fight all this other stuff. If he has other irons in the fire in terms of business, yes, you focus on those. But if you truly think you can beat Michael Chandler, which I'm sure he does, and to be honest, it's one of the better matchups for him, a win does wonders for him right now. Him stepping into the octagon, getting a knockout win would be huge. If he does to Chandler what he did to Cerrone, it will definitely reinvigorate him big time. I don't know how much, but I mean, Chandler is a top contender, right? I mean, he just fought for the title not that long ago. You fought Gaethje. I mean, he's right up there. So if he comes in and he crushes Chandler, it shows, okay, yeah, he fell off a little bit, but he's not he's not done yet. He maybe could make another run at the title. He maybe could do X, Y, Z. And I don't want to get into arguments with hardcores about he actually could or could not. It's the perception. It's all about the perception. So he beats Chandler. That immediately gives him... a a boost, especially if he gets on the mic and is able to cut a promo that people love, right? Like he does Mystic Mac promo, does the I apologize for absolutely nothing, anything like that that gets attention. You'll get a bunch of people saying McGregor's back, he's doing this, he looks great. That'll be a, a nice big boost. Other ways he can get a boost is start to move into, you know, more... More PR stuff, right? Do more charity stuff. I know he's done some, but do more charity stuff. Do more, you know, interviews. Talk to people more. Get his face out in the public eye more, and and kind of bring that charisma that he's had. If he's able to do that, especially if he's able to do that in the lead up to Chandler, where you know you have something similar to him and Nate Diaz on MSNBC. Like if you're able to do that with Chandler or on a bigger network, that's huge. And mind you, the bigger networks right now, Fox News, CNN, all those guys are are hurting for viewership. So that might be easier to do than one might think, right? You might actually be able to get on a major news network or a major like ABC or something like that. ABC might be tough, but still, you might be able to expand your eye to the casual or you might be able to expand your presence to the casual audience again. Get people invested in the fight, get people invested in you again. He's got to kind of do like a PR circuit. That's, I think, his best move. There's not much else he can do here. He can't, you know, save creating some revolutionary product where he'll be known for it outside of all his career in MMA or doing some heroic act or something crazy. He's got to probably fight Chandler and he's got to do a PR circuit. He does those things. I think there's a solid chance he can get a little bit more burn out of that star. He doesn't. It's going to be tough. If he doesn't fight Chandler, I, I think it's going to, again, slowly wane. Everybody remembers the last fight, right? Everybody remembers the last run, and everybody loves a comeback story. It, it's true, right? I can't think of how many times you've had people fall, stumble, blah, 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 like look bad, look like they're done. All of a sudden, they come back, they win, you know, years later when they shouldn't, or they're playing at a level that's just wild, right? Derek Rose 
is a great example of this where, you know, he obviously fell off after his injuries and then he came back and started, you know, playing so well. Everybody loved it. He got more attention than he had in a while. That's how you reinvigorate your star. McGregor can do that. He just has to step into the cage with Chandler. Let me know what you think on whether his star power is faded or not. Uh, let me know if you think that's the best option for McGregor at this point. I'm curious because I don't see a lot of other options, honestly. I think that's probably his best move. All right. Super fast, quick hit section because I've been rambling for a bit and we've got some more to cover before this episode ends. Uh, first up, Israel Adesanya and Alex Vol- Alexander Volkanovsky uh, are the first prime athletes getting sponsored by Logan Paul's prime drink. I think that's a big move for both of them just because prime is selling off the shelves right now. It's kind of crazy. Uh, it gets their name out to the more casual viewer. It's a big deal. Um, think it's a huge win for both those guys. I think it's a good move by Paul in terms of getting, um, you know, some good faces out there who especially draw well internationally, which will help expand their operations internationally, if that's where they're planning to go, which I think it is. So I think that's a really good call. Um, but yeah, huge congrats to both of them. Big deal. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good move for all parties around. I think, I think that's one of those no brainer deals right there. Um, Taitu Avasa joins the chosen advisory group, uh, for representation and management. I think that's a good call too. that group. Uh, I've heard good things. Haven't, you know, done a ton of research there, but I've only heard good things from what I have. Um, and you know, him having that type of management, especially when he kind of got a, you know, second win with his career, getting all the way to the gone fight and what was an awesome fight. Um, and, and having the ability to, you know, stand and be in the top 10, top five, obviously, uh, run into some issues in the last couple, but against very, very tough opponents. I think having somebody advise and, and take over in that regard, especially if they're able to kind of deal with some more endorsements and sponsors, this is the time for him to take advantage of that, right? It's going to be hard for him to win the belt. Can maybe do it. He's still young enough. He's just got to kind of, you know, put in the work and hopefully make some adjustments in his game, but still some, some killers at the top of everywhere right now, which did not think I would ever say again, uh, uh, you know, circa 2009, but the, the divisions really come back and Ty has an opportunity here with his, his spotlight, you know, being bigger than it used to be, although not crossover star level, this is the time to time of management and make those calls. So I think that's a good move on his part. Um, Hori Masvidal said his top payout was about $5 million for his fights. That gives you, again, a really good glimpse into fighter pay. Uh, obviously, with his fights against Usman, first one did, you know, 1.x million pay-per-view buys. He only got $5 million from that, if he's telling the truth there, which I do believe he is. Speaks to everyone saying, oh, these guys are making money you don't even know about. Like, mm, I don't think so, man. Like, I think we're pretty spot on the money. Um I think, you know, Nash's breakdown of uh, fighter MRP, you know, utilizing Paul Giff's MRP analysis uh, with John Jones is a good example. And what we know from the antitrust filing, right? Like these guys aren't making in general eight to 10 million, maybe McGregor and Jones, but that's, you know, Masvidal killed it way more than people thought with his, uh, you know, Usman pay-per-view buys and still 5 million tops. So that that's again providing he's telling the truth, which I do think he probably is, because lying wouldn't really help him much in this scenario. Uh, yeah, 
just shows, you know, the transparency of fighter pay a little bit more. And last but not least, we need to talk about uh, crypto.com shutting down U.S. operations, which I alluded to in an earlier segment. Very unlikely that they will pay the UFC the sponsorship that they agreed upon. Depends on how much money they have in the bank, but crypto has just had kind of a winter bad time, right? You got FTX, got all these other guys. Uh, you had the the fight of the night bonuses that were voted on that got suspended. I mean, I think, um, I believe they're also having issues with the arena they bought, right? Um, I I think they're probably done. And I think they're at least at the level they were. And I think they're not going to pay the UFC what they want. They might end up with a settlement. Uh, maybe they have to if they have enough cash on hand because they'll I'm sure they'll get sued if they don't pay. But I would not be shocked if suddenly the crypto.com logo just disappears from jerseys. I will put it at that. Those are my quick hits for this podcast. Let me know if I missed anything. I probably did because it's been a while since we've had a podcast. But yeah, those were the biggest ones I thought stood out. Let me know if I miss anything. All right. Last thing we're going to talk about on today's episode briefly is the PFL's business strategy moving forward. They have a lot going on right now. What's their next move? So we've heard about them potentially purchasing Bellator, uh, looking to raise millions of dollars from Middle East investors. I believe the Qatar Investment Authority is what I've heard from multiple people. Um, we also know that as of late, they have had to deal with multiple fires, including the drug testing scandal, um, where several fighters, including the former champ Rob Wilkinson, was removed from the tournament. Uh, the current lawsuit going on um, from a Brazilian prospect, uh, Sosa, I believe his name is, forget his first name, uh, but... Manuel, you know, I'm terrible at names. Manuel Sosa, who won his bout in the Challenger Series, was offered another bout in the Challenger Series, but I guess wasn't able to do it because of COVID. And then um, tried to go on Dana White Contender Series and they said, nah, we're going to block you. PFL did. And he's apparently under a three-year contract as a backup. So he doesn't love that. And he's trying to, you know, get that thrown out. And then the most recent issue with uh, Natan Schult and Rush Manifau, um, you know, teammates being forced to fight in a bracket, which seemed kind of seemed kind of deliberate from the outside looking in, right? Uh, give Burgos an opportunity for a finish to get in and then have two teammates who are good friends who probably aren't going to swing for the fences and try and knock each other out, uh, end up going to a decision, which the latter part happened. The first part, Burgos also went to a decision, so he didn't get in. And then, you know, PFL announced it didn't meet our contractual standards, Thus, both are suspended for Rush and Natan, and Burgos gets you know shifted in there, despite the Georgia Athletic Commission saying, "Nope, this is a legit bout. We're not looking into it from a fixed fighting perspective." And uh, there being real no, really no, <laughs> no evidence that it was a true fixed fight. Right? I saw a lot of people being like, "It was fixed." Like, no, these guys were probably pulling punches or going easy and it was a sparring exhibition, right? That's probably true um, to an extent, but it's you can't know, right? You cannot know. And what did the PFL expect to happen, right? The matchups have always been, um, as I've seen some people say, uh, you know, uh, Cha I always butcher his name, Chuck Mendark uh, Sandu, who's out there as podcast, talks about 
sent a tweet out that essentially said, you know, when I used to work at the BFL, this is stuff I always hated where they clearly put matchups together to give certain fighters an advantage, etc. Yes, it's supposed to be a merit-based system, but the beauty of a merit-based system where you have a season and the matchups are determined by the promotion is the promotion can certainly favor certain fighters uh, based on their initial matchups. And I'm not saying that's what PFL did necessarily. I don't know their process in terms of, you know, if they have a certain method of, of pulling numbers or what, I don't know how that works, but seeing people like former employees tweet that at least from a perception perspective, right. Is never great. So again, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. I'm not saying they're doing that for sure. Cause I do not know. Uh, but never a good luck when former employees and other people are saying that. So that's something that you've got to kind of, you know, deal with a lot of, a lot of hurdles, right? A lot of negative press swirling, uh, although it has kept PFL in the news cycle. So if you're of the um, belief that all press is good press, it's it's good for them. But one very important factor that I don't think has been talked about enough is the PFL's ratings. The ratings for the PFL are up quite a bit compared to last year. Um, looking at the... Uh, USTVDB.com, which is USTVDatabase.com, right? Their ratings are higher than they've ever been. And, um, you know, you even had them touch the, you know, 300, 400K mark on certain things, I believe. Um, the average I'm seeing here is 309,000 people, which is much higher than, um, and, and that was for uh, the daily audience, daily audience on June 23rd. So the 300, 9,000. Um, I mean, that's, that's much higher than it used to be, right? PFL used to be consistently in the 100s, 200s, et cetera, even last season. So their ratings are up, which is great. And they've got a lot more sponsors. They've got bigger names now. Um, despite what's happening with those bigger names, the ratings are, are a huge positive. And this is the interesting thing about the MMA industry as a whole. And a promotion like PFL, right? From a business strategy, you've got all these things going on. A lot of rumors swirling about purchasing and, and investor raising, uh, fighters suing you, fighters obviously getting disgruntled regarding certain fights. Uh, several of your former champions and bigger homegrown names needing to get pulled uh, due to drug test issues. Obviously, you had at the end of last season, Kayla Harrison lose, who was your biggest name star, uh, lose to somebody that quite frankly kills a lot of the, Oh, how would she do in these super fights type conversation? Um, not that Harrison can't get better and that she can't, you know, be the best ever, but it, it hurts the argument of, Oh, Harrison would just crush cyborg or Nunez, et cetera. Like maybe not hard to say, especially cause they're at 155, which I think cyborg is the only one who could comfortably fight Harrison at that weight. But Regardless, you, you've had all these obstacles and yet your ratings are up and ratings ultimately are going to be the biggest factor when you're looking at investment from an outside company, uh, when you're looking at, you know, sponsorships, if people bring up all this negative stuff, you could say, well, yeah, but check out our ratings, check out our ratings growth over the past year and a half, check out the sponsors we've brought on, check out the names we've been able to sign and Anthony Pettis. Uh, Royer McDonald, even though he's retired now, uh, Shane Burgos now, right? Like Francis Ngannou, obviously the huge signing. Check all that out. 
and then look at the numbers. And that's what it always comes down to, right? UFC is a prime example of this. They have had so many scandals, so many things that would have sunk or caused massive reverberations in any other major sports league. Um, and yet they've only continued to grow. If McGregor throws the dolly through the bus and he is an NBA player, he's banned for life. If he is an NFL player, he's banned for life. If he is, uh, well, I don't know about banned for life, but he's, he's at least suspended for years and it, it hurts him badly. Um, the sexual assault allegations is definitely investigated at a crazy level. He's probably suspended until those allegations are revealed. You probably have so many teams pass on him just out of, we don't want that trouble. Um, yeah, it, it's a no brainer, right? Uh, I, I mean, look at what happened with John Morant, right? Like with the showing the gun, he's suspended for, I don't know how many games, like a crazy amount of games uh, for just showing a gun on Instagram. McGregor gets suspended for a season or gets kicked out of the league. It's it's a much harsher penalty and a much uh, much different outcome. That much I'm sure. In MMA, combat sports, uh, it's just a no, normal thing. Domestic violence dispute, right? Where Ray Rice had that issue and never got to play again. Uh, I don't know how many fighters have domestic violence issues that were signed and even promoted on the platform whether it be UFC, uh, haven't seen as many in Bellator or, uh, you know, PFL or, or one, but they're there, right? Probably just not as much scrutiny. It, it's just part of, of the world, unfortunately. And again, other leagues would punish this hard, but not in combat sports. And that's something PFL can kind of rely on. We've seen the biggest star of the sport do some pretty awful things and still be welcomed back like a hero regularly right punching the old man saying the terrible things uh regarding uh habib's wife and and in that lead up uh, all the sexual assault allegations the you know sending a mascot to a hospital recently because why not right like we have seen some terrible, terrible things and people welcome him with open arms still regularly. We've seen John Jones do plenty of terrible stuff, right? Similar type of stuff. Welcome back regularly. So yes, they're going to get flack. PFL is going to get a ton of flack for the Natan Schultz, Jane Burgos stuff. Uh, they're going to get a ton of flack for their fighters getting pulled they might get some, you know, scrutiny from the Middle East investments, right? Um, especially if they end up getting an investment from Qatar or whatever, because, you know, a lot of, we've seen this with Live Golf, seen this other places, right? Like sports washing uh, type stuff. So yeah, might get some blowback there, but their ratings are up. They have the hottest heavyweight free signing under their banner. Who's going to fight for them? Right, probably have three boxes, but he's almost he's gonna be in in the octagon and or not octagon, deck decagon, whatever it is, the cage, the smart cage. There, there it is. He's gonna be in the smart cage. He's gonna make that walk, and with that in mind, it's gonna draw viewers. And so, if I'm PFL right now, my strategy is simple: PR where you can in these areas, 
defend what you can in these areas. Take the negative feedback because you're going to get negative feedback, right? You're going to get criticism for these comments and decisions. Um, make sure that you're able to keep most of the roster happy or at least semi-happy because you want to be able to continue to sign guys and something like the Natan Schultz pull or the drug testing thing, um, that could blow back and hurt you because all of a sudden, right, you don't want a bigger name who's deciding between you and the UFC and Bellator and they look at your track record with that and they're like, well, I don't know, right? Um, especially as you get more stars because if you're one of the bigger names for vets from the UFC now, you're probably given preference, no problem. But once they start to have a full roster of those guys, uh, then it could be an issue. And I mean, we saw with the Verdum fight, right? Like that was kind of a mess with the, um, you know, him essentially not getting to go on to the playoffs when he probably won and all that other fun stuff last season. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely a couple of, of, well, that might factor into negotiations, but maybe it doesn't too. And as long as you're able to keep prospective fighters happy and the overall roster still having the right type of vibe with management, um, fighter management and agents and all that stuff, that's what you focus on most. And then you continue what you're doing because your ratings are up and you've signed Nganu. And yes, there will be so much negative BS, but the numbers don't lie. And the numbers are all that investors are going to care about, right? Most of them might have certain angel investors. Certain people say, I don't want to be associated with this or I don't know about this, but for the most part, they're not going to care. So you keep doing what you're doing. Especially, I mean, if, if ratings are going to go up with Burgos in the playoffs, yeah, it's not a great look to pull Schultz, especially after you match them up. It's you deserve the criticism you get for that. But at the same time, if his ratings are better than if you had Schultz in the playoffs, then yeah, it's the right business call. You've justified it in a weird way and you're going to get flack, but your numbers are up, which affects your sponsorships, which affects your investors, et cetera. I mean, if that is the whole case, right? That's truly what happened with, you know, them pulling uh, Schultz, which I kind of lean towards it is. That's the right business call. It's definitely not worse than anything UFC has done or one has done. One has been pulling this type of stuff forever. <laughs> so it's not like it's a, you know, bad business call in that regard. It's a good business call. This isn't, remember, this show is not about ethics and morals and all this stuff in terms of like, what's the right thing to do? This is about what is the best thing for business. Some of you obviously know where I feel on certain areas uh, because, you know, sometimes you have to talk about that from a business perspective. But again, I in this scenario, it's the right call. Burgos draws more. Cool, put him in the playoffs. Who cares? I mean, Schultz and Rush had a very lackluster fight. It Great, pull him. Didn't live up to the contractual obligations according to your business. As long as you're not liable legally, pull him. Put in Burgos. That's the right business call because you're on a growth trajectory right now. And that's huge. Growing in MMA is very hard to do given UFC's dominance. If your ratings are up, you got to keep that momentum by any means necessary. That's what they're doing. So yeah, ignore the noise. Keep going. That's what I would say from a, you know, business strategy perspective for PFL. If as long as your numbers and ratings are up, as long as you're getting more sponsorship interest, if you're able to get this huge in, 
influx of cash and money because your numbers are good and you're signing the right people, then you keep going because that's how you win in business. It's not not who's doing the right thing. Obviously, look at look look at the industry as a whole and tell me that you know the most virtuous businesses in MMA are winning. Yeah, so. That's my suggestion on the strategy. Let me know your guys' thoughts, uh, but that's where I land on that, is ignore the noise. Keep on going, PFL. All right, thanks everybody for listening. Appreciate it, glad to be back. Uh, I'm not even gonna promise that I'm gonna do a bunch of stuff because every time I do that, like stuff hits the fan and it's real bad. So I'm just happy to be back and I'm excited for the next episode and I hope that you are too. Love you guys as always. And until I see you next time, get money.